0: Welcome to week three of our journey through the book of Jude. And as we usually do, I'd like to briefly recap where we've been. So Jude is writing a book, but it's basically a letter, a letter that he originally intended to write for encouragement. He wanted to encourage these young Christians in their faith. However, he's changed his tone. He says that certain people have crept into the church, false teachers spreading false doctrine. And now rather than write a letter of encouragement, he's writing a letter of emergency, a wake up call. Be on the lookout for the wolves are already among you. Jude is an artist. Throughout this book, he demonstrates this. He uses images and metaphor and allusions to paint beautiful pictures. He takes our imagination to other places. And one of the favorite brushes he likes to use in his painting is that of a triad. Now we introduced this last week, but I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into the mechanics of this. What I mean by triad is Jude never just makes his point by listing one thing. When he wants to make his point, he hits it three times. So things appear in groups of three in lists of three. Now something similar to this also occurs with music. In music, we have triads. So you can hit a single note, say this C note, but you can add an additional note to make that note all the stronger. And if you add the third note, making it a triad, you have a C chord. Similarly, rather than using musical triads, Jude uses literary triads. He makes his one. Two, three, And it's a way to deliver that point with all the more strength. Now, one of the fascinating things about triads, and this is especially clear with music, is that you can change things ever so subtly, and all of a sudden the emotion produced by that chord, that triad, sounds and is received in an incredibly different manner. So for instance, you can have a triad that sounds bright and happy. But you can also change the structure of that triad. And all of a sudden you go from happiness to a sadness. And you can change it even more to go from happy to sad to all of a sudden giving a feeling of emergency. And that's exactly what Jude does throughout this letter. He uses triads to produce an emotion. And sometimes it's an encouraging feeling. It's like him saying, I want mercy, peace, and love to be multiplied unto you. In another sense, though, it might be three images of judgment in in, in place to instill this sense of, of warning in you. And as we go through the rest of this book, I'd like you to pay close attention to how Jude is using these literary triads so let's continue our journey through the book of jude jude 11 through 13 woe to them for they walked in the way of cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to balaam's heir and perished in korah's rebellion now did you catch that as we read it immediately we're introduced to the next triad Jude tells us these false teachers are like three things. He tells us they are like Cain. He tells us they are like Balaam. And the third part of the triad, he tells us they're like Korah. Let's deal with these individually. First, we're reminded of the story of Cain. Now, Cain is introduced to us in the first few pages of the scriptures, and he's introduced to us as an evil, wicked man. He doesn't just kill anybody. He kills a family member. He murders his brother. And because of that, there was a lot of Jewish tradition and writings regarding Cain, and he's typically kind of personified as an archetypical picture of evil in like the worst possible sense. In one extra biblical writing called Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, Cain is said to have said, there is no judge, there is no judgment, there is no other world. In other words, Cain lives like a godless man. He might believe in the existence of some reality of a God, but he lives as if there is no God. He's an embodiment of the Greek word asabase, godless or ungodly, which we covered from previous weeks. Now that's bad enough, but the evil goes even further. So let's take a look into that story in a more deeper manner. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Immediately, the patterns of human behavior are already on display. Now, what's interesting is that in one sense, we share more similarities with Cain and Abel than with Adam and Eve. I mean, certainly we're, we're all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve and made in the image of God, but Adam and Eve were birthed by God, mature and developed. Cain and Abel, like us, developed in, in a womb and were grown inside another human being and birthed by a woman. And what do these human beings immediately walk into? They walk into murder. Cain kills his brother. And what's even worse about that story is it's not just the murder of some party or some guilty party. It is the murder of that, which is most innocent. Cain kills the innocent party, his brother. Now, there is brilliance in this story that you could spend the rest of your life reading over and studying. In these short biblical stories, so much insight and information is jam-packed into them, but sometimes you have to slow down and take it all in. So in the story of Cain and Abel, Cain just doesn't hate his brother or kill his brother. Cain hates the very structure of reality Cain hates the way the world operates. And by implication, then, Cain hates the one who is running the world. See, Cain sees that there's some type of perceived unfairness going on. He thinks the world doesn't operate in the manner that he would have it. So his hatred is not just directed at his brother in the horizontal sense. Cain's hatred is pointed in a vertical sense, to the one who is running and operating in the world. Cain hates not only his brother, he hates God. And so in the story, we see an attack, not just on our innocent brother, but on the very structure of reality, his attack is on God himself. Now, Abel is pictured as the ideal. He is everything that Cain is not, but rather than Cain aspiring to be good and that which he is not to be like his brother, Cain, in hatred, kills the innocent and attacks another human and God in turn. See, oftentimes you think your sin might just be against another human being, but in reality, your attack is on God himself. This is the reason why Jude brings Cain up. The false teachers are teaching false doctrine to other Christian believers, but make no mistake about it. Their sin is not just against humans, it's against God. And that's why they are like Cain. Let's move on to the second note in the triad. They are not only like Cain, they are also like Balaam. Balaam is introduced to us in the book of Numbers, and he's presented as a character who is willing to do wrong for financial reward. So apparently the false teachers that Judas that Jude's talking about are people who have crept in and somehow are making money off their teachings in some corrupt manner. Now, This is something that has taken place all throughout church history. I mean, God wants good, sound biblical teachers in churches, but oftentimes people come in and see that they can receive some type of financial reward in some corrupt manner. So in the early church, it might be to receive the church's blessing. You must pay X, Y, Z. In the medieval period, it was with indulgences. And today it's with the prosperity gospel. Either way, Jude wants you to know is watch out for teachers who appear to be greedy. The third note in the triad deals with Korah. Now Korah comes to us from the book of Numbers as well. And it's the story of a man who tried to usurp the authority of Moses. He led a rebellion against Moses. And like many of the images and illusions in the book of Jude, it ends with judgment. Korah leads this group. God says, I'm not having it. Moses is the proper authority and judgment comes upon him and his rebellion. Now, authority is a difficult thing for us, right? No one likes to be in a position where they are called to submit to authority. But in the scriptures, God says he puts authority over us for our good. And these teachers... They don't wanna come under any authority. They don't wanna submit to scripture. They don't wanna submit to the good teachers and they don't wanna submit to God. They wanna be in the position of authority. And because of that, they are met with judgment. Now let's move on to the next set of images and I want you to pay close attention to what's going on because this imagery is heavy. It is thick and it is robust. Jude goes on. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, and they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild rays of the sea, casting out the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now, Jude says, these are hidden reefs in your love feast. Now, we have to immediately ask the question, what are the hidden reefs? And likewise, what are love feasts? Let's start with the latter. Love feasts were meals that the early church would gather around. And one of the interesting things about them is they were times when you not only participated in communion, but you would share a common meal together. It was a powerful symbol of the love and fellowship that the first Christians for had, that they had for each other. Now, Jude is saying though, there's something in your love feasts, something dangerous to be on the lookout for. And he calls them hidden reefs. Now, what are those? comes to us from the world of sailing. If a boat was traveling, oftentimes there would be hidden rocks or hidden reefs that the boat would go over and can bring destruction upon the ship and in turn bring destruction upon anyone who was in that ship. Jude's claim is that while you're participating in these love feasts, that these false teachers have crept in and they are dangerous, man. They are dangerous like hidden reefs when you're out sailing. Now, he further goes on to describe them and says that the The false teachers do things without fear, and they are like shepherds feeding themselves. Now, first let's talk about this idea of without fear. In scripture, what is the beginning of wisdom? Where does wisdom begin? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, this is incredibly important because Actually fearing God keeps you safe in many ways. There are things that you might want to do, and the reason why you don't do them is because you actually have a healthy fear of God. So one of the things I tell my kids is that the ocean is a wonderful place. It is beautiful. It is incredible. It's fun to play in. But also be sure to have a healthy fear of the ocean. Don't mess around with the ocean. Yes, it's good. Yes, it's beautiful. Yes, it's fun to play at, but have a healthy fear of it. These false teachers have no fear of God. Jude also says that they are like shepherds feeding themselves. And this is most likely an allusion to Ezekiel 34.2. And it's this idea that shepherds are supposed to feed the sheep. They are the ones who care for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. He feeds his flock. Jesus tells Peter to feed his sheep. And Peter does so, but not with these guys. They don't feed the flock. They feed themselves. And they do so without having any fear of God or the repercussions. Now, the next set of images, they are heavy. This is some of the most heavy hitting pictures in the entirety of the scriptures. I'm going to read them and I want you to pay attention because Jude is doing something here. He's going to give us images and they each stand alone as themselves. But if you're able to detect the key images, you will see that if you put the images together, an even bigger picture emerges. Jude says, these teachers are waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It's like, you feel that weight. It's heavy. Now, there's a lot of things, but let me go over this a little bit more slowly. Jude is using images. And if you put some of the images together, a greater picture in greater resolution emerges. Jude says that there are waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves, and wandering stars. First, we have waterless clouds. And then we have a second image, fruitless trees. And we have a third image, wild waves. And then lastly, the fourth image is wandering stars. Now you notice there's four images here. And it's like, well, why didn't he do a triad? We've been talking one, two, three the whole time. But what Jude is doing is he's taking four images from the four kind of representations of the corners of the world at the time. And he takes waterless clouds representing air, fruitless trees, an image of earth, wild waves, an image of water, and lastly, an image of wandering stars, the heavens. So you have air, earth, water and heavens represented. It's Jude's way of saying this is the sum total of reality. Or to make his point crystal clear, these false teachers are really, really, really bad. And you better be on the lookout for them. Waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves, wandering stars. Now, part of the reason why it was so difficult to see those elements or those four regions of the earth, the air, earth, water, heavens, was that in between each one of the four regions represented, there's adjectives or further descriptors to highlight what those regions are actually doing. But if we highlight them, you can actually see kind of what's going on. So the waterless clouds are modified by swept along by winds. The region of earth represented by fruitless trees is modified by in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. The wild waves are modified by of the sea casting up their, the foam of their own shame. And lastly, the wandering stars are modified by for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for ever. So the imagery is is crazy, but it's actually, it's it's a masterpiece. Again, Jude is an artist. You have the four major regions of the world represented, and in between them is further imagery to describe those regions. Now, let's look at these independently, and we can see how they break down. So first, you have the waterless clouds, and they're swept along by the winds. Now, for us, that's a kind of a bizarre image, waterless clouds, but The ancient world was absolutely dependent upon water for survival. So when you saw clouds and you thought there was going to be rain, if rain was not delivered, it would be devastating to such a degree that it might mean your life. The false teachers promise water. They promise something good, but they're actually waterless. They have no hope. The next region of the earth represented is, 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 is earth actually dirt or ground. And it's represented by fruitless trees. And Jude says, these trees are in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Now, how do these further descriptors work? It's late autumn and they're still fruitless. In other words, it's past the time of fruit. It's not like, hey, there's no fruit, but it's early spring. Give it a couple months and there'll be some oranges. It's past season and they have no fruit. And then it says they're twice dead. Now this, this one's crazy, twice dead. In scripture, the believer is said to be born again. He is twice born. Jesus says, you must be born again. There's your first birth and then there's the second birth. So you are alive twice in that sense. But the false teachers Are twice dead. They are the antithesis, the anti, the opposite of being born again. They're twice dead. And because of that, they're uprooted. There's no chance they're ever gonna produce fruit. They're not even in the ground anymore. The third image wild waves. They are of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. And it's this kind of gross image of the waves bringing in this, this disgusting imagery. And as if you read it in context, it's like these teachers don't even care. And then the last region, the, the heavenlies, it's their wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now this phrase is wandering stars is very interesting. In the ancient world, people not only expected, but they relied upon the stars in the heavenly to be ordered and structured for various reasons. One of the issues they ran into, however, was that certain stars appeared to be wandering. They didn't follow the same path and trajectory of the other stars in the sky. Now, we know that those wandering stars are planets, and they're not on the same system as the stars. And what's fascinating is this Greek word for wandering is actually the the Greek word planetos, where we actually get the word planet. They are wandering stars. Now, there might be something else going on here. See, planetes, or wandering planet, or wandering stars, also relates to another tradition. Satan is described as Lucifer or the morning star. And the morning star is actually the planet Venus. And what's incredibly fascinating about Venus or this wandering star is that it is a lesser light that competes with the glory of the greater light. And that's why the tradition developed around it with Satan. He is the lesser light who's in constant competition to outshine the greater light. And so for Jude... Both Satan and the false teachers are people who are lesser lights competing to be in the place of the greater light, God himself. Now Jude goes on at this point. In verses 14 and 16, he says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes when ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. These are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. That's a very difficult passage. And it's the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, is who is this, this Enoch character that we are talking about? Now, we actually don't know much about him, but he appears to us in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. And there it says that Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more, for God took him. And that's sort of it. Like, that's what we know. He walked with God, and then he was no more, for God had taken him. So all kinds of questions arise, like, did did he die and he go to heaven? Or was he alive and God sort of brought him into heaven? And there's all kinds of questions that we don't have answers. But the character is fascinating because we have next to like zero information about him, but he is unique in, in all of scripture in this way. And because of that, all kinds of legends and folktales develop surrounding this character, Enoch. And in one of those... Enoch is said to give the prophecy that I just read. Now, at this point, a lot of people run into an an issue because this is actually the second time Jude has quoted a story or document that's not in scripture. So people often have kind of theological problems with this. Wait, wait, wait. If Jude quotes something outside of the Bible, does that make it on par with the Bible? Does that make it equal to scripture? And even though there's a lot of confusion about this, the answer is quite simple. It's no. Paul quotes pagan prophets to prove his point. It's not to say that the pagans are inspired by the Holy Spirit in the same sense that Scripture is. It's just saying that there are truths or things that are true, like two plus two equals four, that are true that aren't in the Scripture. And if there's something true out there in the world or something that may contain a truth or contain an idea the scriptures will often quote those no problems. So in this case, the book of Enoch has this idea that Enoch gives this prophecy of judgment. And to that, Judah appeals. He says, in the same way that this guy Enoch prophesied this judgment and this judgment, it's against all who was ungodly. This is what God's going to do. So you don't have to get confused or bothered by the fact that Jude will quote from other sources. The scriptures do this often. And it's just a way to say, if this truth from this portion can assist me in proving my point, then we can use it to help us. Now, the main point of all of this is that Enoch is someone who walked with God and prophesied against the ungodly. Now, verse 16 is something I want to focus on. He says that these people who are godless in their ways. These are grumblers. They're malcontents following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now this list has some powerful words and I have some questions. These are descriptions of people who are godless. And I can tell you, even though that was 2000 years ago, that is true today. If you're not rooted in Christ, it will become so easy to become a grumbler. It'll be easy to become someone who is a malcontent. It will be easy to follow your sinful desires. It'll easy to become a loudmouth boaster. It'll easy to start. It'll be easy to start showing favoritism to gain advantage. So ask yourself, are you a grumbler? Are you malcontent? Do you follow your sinful desires? Are you a loud mouth boaster? Do you show favoritism to gain advantage? Because Jude says, this is not the way of Christ. This is not what Christians look like. It's what these false teachers look like, who Enoch alludes to. Now, out of this incredibly difficult portion of scripture, the question arises, how are we to integrate and center ourselves on the gospel out of this? Do you fall into any of these categories? Are you one who grumbles? Are you a malcontent? Do you follow your own sinful desires? Are you a loudmouth boaster? Do you show favoritism to gain advantage? These characteristics are not to be of a Christian. They're the characteristics of false teachers. As Christians, we should be rooted in Christ and have behavior that's different than these. Now, as we leave behind this complex portion of scripture, a question arises, how do we now integrate and center ourselves on the gospel? Now, in order to do this, I want us to go back to where we began today to the person of Cain. Cain was the one who killed his brother. He killed the ideal. He killed that which was innocent. He killed that which he was not. And in that, we see that Cain's story is the story of these false teachers, but maybe even more terrifying than that is Cain's story is our story as well. See, 2,000 years ago, the innocent son came. He lived a life that was perfectly pleasing to his father. And we as corporate collected humanity saw this. We didn't try to mimic or follow or be like this innocent son. We in turn murdered him as well. And 2000 years ago, humanity kills the son of God in the most horrific ways. Jesus Christ is nailed to a Roman cross and he dies in agony. Now, the good news is that is even as he is suffering, he doesn't shake his fists at God. He doesn't hate the structure of reality. He doesn't hate his father, but he to the very end lives the life that is pleasing to his father. And he says while he is suffering, Father, forgive, forgive them for they know not what they do. See, Cain's blood runs through our veins. All of humanity has killed the innocent son. But this innocent son who lived a life perfectly pleasing to the father does not come down to bring judgment, but to offer grace and forgiveness for all those who would receive it. And it's a free gift. That's why it's called grace. And this is what's so important when we confront the behavior and sins in our lives is we don't change how we behave in order to receive this forgiveness We change because we have been recipients of forgiveness, recipients in grace, and out of gratitude, thankfulness, and love for the sacrifice that was perfectly pleasing to the Father, we live differently. So now we turn from sin and walk in His mercy, peace, and love, which Jude said has been multiplied unto us. So the question for you today is, Are there areas of unconfessed sin in your life? As believers, we take them to God. We don't have to hide them from God. It's the unbelieving false teachers who walk in secret sin. But we bring our problems and our faults and our failures to a good heavenly Father, who through the power and work of the Son gives us grace freely. So take these moments. Are there sins that you need to take to God? Prepare your hearts for this and talk with your good heavenly Father.